perhaps they are listening and watching via the internet. We do appreciate you joining with us this morning and along with our congregation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. <clears throat> We spent a few Sundays, and of course Brother Vance spoke during uh, the uh, Advent season as well, but we spent a few Sundays looking at the incarnation uh, uh, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and closed that out last Sunday morning looking at Jesus Christ and his broadcasting of the truth. This morning we're back in uh, the great book of Romans. Uh, looking to complete it here in the next few weeks uh, as we endeavor again to preach uh, expositionally. Over the past few Sundays, we've looked at textual messages, but now we're back in Romans chapter 15. Actually, we're going to pick up this morning, <coughs> excuse me, with verse 19 of chapter 14 and read through verse 13 of chapter 15. And so we have found these words, Paul writing from Corinth to Rome. He had not visited Rome when he wrote this letter. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, you indeed are the one that we adore. You are the one that 
petitioned your son, and Lord Jesus, you were willing to come to this sin-cursed earth, this God-forsaken earth, and walk among men, a man among men, the God-man among men, in order that we may fall at your feet, call out for forgiveness of our sins, and in faith be born again. That faith is arrested in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And so this morning, Father, as we venture into the 15th chapter of Romans, remind us again that all of these wonderful doctrines, these indicatives that you have given to us through the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, are written for our admonition so that we may learn how to become disciples. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So about uh, three months ago as we closed out chapter 14, we focused on uh, matters of uh, faith, matters of, of conscience. We looked at those particular things and we focused obviously on uh, verses uh, 22 and 23 of chapter 14 at that time. Now this morning we're going to continue the thought that actually began back in chapter 13, which is the unity and diverse uh, diversity rather that is in Christ's church. Now we're a local church here. We're Flat Creek, and the church that resides here at Flat Creek on Ward's Road. A few months ago, as we started through chapter 13, I reminded you that more often than not, when we come into a church, we bring all of our preferences with us. And that our preferences, while they may be good and noble, are not what drives the church. Priorities, especially what is found in the teachings of the doctrines of the first 11 chapters, and then made real to us, beginning in chapter 12, that's what drives the church. Those are the priorities. And so this morning, as we begin chapter 15, we're actually going to review verses 22 and 23 of 14 in just a moment. But as we begin chapter 15, I want us to focus on from doctrine to discipleship and be reminded that we are taught in these verses, verses 1 through 13, that we are to bear reproach as a church. We are to receive others as Christ received them. And then we are to rejoice in Christ Jesus as our only hope. Now, I remind you of this, and I've probably over the years, hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times. The verse and chapter divisions in the Bible were added centuries after the Word of God, the canon of Scripture was completed. The chapter divisions were added in 1205, during the Middle Ages, by Bishop Stephen Langton. And the verse divisions were added to the New Testament in 1551 by a man by the name of Robert Stephanus. So don't assume as you're reading the Bible that the chapter and the verse divisions are in the best places. In many cases, they are not. And here's one of them. Chapter 15, or the beginning of chapter 15, 
actually fits better in verse 14 of chapter 15 than it does here, chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. So I'm not speaking heresy this morning. When Paul wrote the letter, it was a complete letter that he wrote to the church at Rome. So remember that. So we're still in chapter 14, even though it's labeled chapter 15. First slide, if you would. Yeah. So let's review just a bit before we start into chapter 15 this morning. So when we summarize chapter uh, 14, thank you, sir. The summary of verses 22 and 23. So Paul is writing that, and he's spoke, spoken a great deal, written a great deal about our conscience in chapters 13 and 14. Paul writes that our consciences and our faith may ignore, and the word that he uses is uh, a diaphorous things. In other words, things that are morally neutral. Big word. But that's what it means. Things that are morally neutral which include things like food and like drink. And we spent some time looking at this passage here in chapter 14. Now the word strong is interesting here because the, the strong that he talks about in verse 22 is, not, is, is a different word when you come to verse 1 of chapter 15. So in verse 22 he talks about strong. What is your... Uh, your conscience, what is in your conscience is between you, between myself, the Lord, and Scripture. Now, many people take this to mean that me and Jesus got it all worked out. But that's not what Paul was writing. And honestly, if you are a believer this morning, you know that's not what Paul was writing. In verse 23, he uses the word uh, weak there. He used doubts as condemned. He's talking about the weakness and so forth that is used there. He concludes that sin exists because we lack faith. And the reason we lack faith is because of our unbelief. Okay? A weak conscience exists. Strong consciences, weak consciences. We talked about that. And a weak conscience exists because we focus on abstention. We are legalist by nature. So we focus on abstention rather than on the freedoms that are in Christ. Now I want to read from Dr. R. Kent Hughes' commentary on the book of Romans. This is one that I've been using. And uh, it's a great quote from a man that, uh, a commentary that he had from Dr. C.E.B. Cranville, who just passed away a few years ago, as a matter of fact. And I like C.E.B. Cranville because his initials stand for Charles Ernest Bradford Cranville. There are not many guys named Ernest any longer. So you know this guy's intelligent if he's got the name Ernest. And Dr. Hughes says, C.E.B. Cranfield, the peerless Romans commentator, gave the clearest explanation of these last two verses that he's found. So Paul has advice for the man who is weak in the faith. 
the man with a scrupulous conscience. It may be that this may disobey or silence his scruples. He may sometimes do something because everyone else is doing it. He may do it because he does not wish to stand in the minority of one. He may do it because he does not wish to be different. He may do it because he does not wish to court ridicule or unpopularity. Paul's answer is that if for any of these reasons a man defiles his conscience, he is guilty of sin. <clears throat> if a man in his heart of hearts believes that a thing is to be wrong, if he cannot rid himself of the irreducible feeling that it is forbidden, then if he does it for him, it is sin. A neutral thing, a diaphorous thing, the neutral thing only becomes a right thing when it is done out of faith, out of the real, reasoned conviction that it is the right thing to do. The only motive for doing anything is that a man believes it to be right. When a thing is done out of social convention, out of fear of unpopularity to please men, then it is wrong. So hopefully that will help to explain a bit of what Paul is writing about in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 14. Now condemnation, which Paul has talked uh, about in the book of Romans, condemnation is for doubters because doubt is driven by unbelief and it's inconsistent with faith. And when we live outside of faith, we're living like unbelievers. Paul's going to challenge this, the latter part of the verses that we've read this morning, when he begins to talk about Gentiles coming to the faith. And as I look about here this morning, all of us are Gentiles. Saved, I trust, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelief is incompatible with faith. We don't exercise faith just to be saved we exercise faith to be born again and to live. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. Next slide, if you would, brother. If we had time, we could go back to Romans chapter 4, and we would see where Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That is the understanding of faith in the book of Romans. Now, the great... Uh, Dutch theologian Herman Babbing wrote this <clears throat> the gospel is the food of faith and must be known to be nourishment now Babbing was not just speaking of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ we get that confused sometimes well that's all I need to believe well the gospel encompasses all of the teachings of Jesus now, it is codified by what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So keep that in mind. The summaries of chapter 14. There are four takeaways from this chapter. Number one, never be a stumbling block to another believer. And he's going to continue to 
um, to eliminate that in chapter 15. We're to live as God's people. We're to concentrate on the eternals, not the externals. The eternal things of God. Thirdly, we're to actively pursue what benefits others and not me, 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 mine. And these we're to do with clear conscience and faith. So that's a summary of chapter 14, and they lead into chapter 15. So God's gift of faith looks back to the cross, and it looks forward in love to others, to do less of sin. John would write, if we say we love God and we hate our brothers, the love of God is not in us. So that is our adjudication. All right. So let's look at chapter 15. Next slide. <clears throat> so what Paul began to do in chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 14, he continues here in chapter 15. And so over these next few weeks, we're going to look at uh, this morning, the first four verses, doctrine to discipleship. We're to bear reproach as a church. Next week, Lord willing, verses 5 through 7, doctrine to discipleship, receiving others as Christ receives them. Not as we receive them, as Christ receives them. And thirdly, verses 8 through 13, from doctrine to discipleship, rejoicing in Christ as our hope, as our joy, and as our peace. So in these first four verses, Paul says, we then that are strong ought to bear with the scruples or the infirmities of the weak. It's probably a better translation. And not to please ourselves. And here's the reason. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. And we do this because Christ did not please himself. To be Christian means we do not please ourselves. That's the definition. And he quotes from Psalm 69. We'll look at that in just a moment. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before, that's the Old Testament. And by the way, Jesus did not have the New Testament. When Jesus preached, he preached from the Old Testament. So for those that decry the Old Testament, so oh, there's no grace in the Old Testament, and that's that we should just kind of pass by the Old Testament, and just focus on the New Testament, be reminded that Jesus preached every sermon from the Old Testament. And so, verse 3, four, verse 4 says, For whatever things were written uh, before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of Scriptures might have hope. So from doctrines to discipleship, we are to bear reproach as a church. So, unity, and that's the theme that Paul is stressing here, unity in diversity is the Trinity's will for his people. We can be diverse, but when we come together as children of God, there must be unity. We there are no lone wolves in God's work. 
in chapter 14 and verse 1. Let's turn back there and look, read that again. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So Paul says, if there are if there's unity, it is a responsibility of all believers, not just the strong, not just the weak. The weak that he uses here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 14, also the word that's used in verse 1 of chapter 15, means without strength, and we'll examine that in just a minute. And the strong, those that are capable, those that have strength of soul, are the especially ones that have the responsibility to bear with the infirmities of the weak. So, it's the responsibility of every born-again believer in the house of God. Everyone. And so if I speak to you this morning and you've been saved for a number of years and you're still a weak, without strength believer, and we'll go into more detail in just a moment on that, that we sin. And if we're here this morning, we have a strong conscience, and it's not guided by Scripture, then we sin. So those are the, the parameters that Paul is using as we move forward in chapter 15. Next slide. We preached about this um, a few weeks ago. We're to follow our conscience. And Dr. Cranfield mentioned that this in the reading this morning. But... There's always a but. Conscience is not allowed, not permitted to be independent of Scripture. What was stated thousands of years ago about personal relationships, about relationships with God, about the codification of the law and so forth, and that hasn't changed, and it hasn't changed because we're more modern or enlightened than those folks were. In many cases, we're not. I dare say that if you were to search the earth this morning, we would probably not find an individual as intelligent as Paul. Now, there may be people with more knowledge about specific things, but I'm talking about intelligence. So, 14.1.15.1. Here the word strong means strong in soul. It means having the ability to bear calamity, to come through circumstances that bring us through trials, that provide for us patience, the opportunity, as James wrote, to bear with these trials in order that we may endure and have patience like God, and that we may have fortitude, that we may be able to withstand whatever the Lord sends our way. Strong Christian virtue is what Paul is talking about here. And the word strong is the word dunatos. If you will look at verse 1, you will also see, so he says we ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and that is the word adunatos. So that 
prefix, the little letter A is added, and it means against the strong or the weak. These are the ones that have very little soul strength. Any wind of doctrine, any wave that hits them, any contemporary thought about the newness of Scripture, for example, the elimination of the Old Testament and the proclamation of the New Testament alone. These things are witness to the fact that we have weak strength of soul. And in many cases it also means that we are incapable of being patient in circumstances. In the face of calamity. In the face of trials. Doesn't mean that you may not get disturbed. But Paul says you need to be able with fortitude to bear with these. Now, Paul understood this because Paul had endured these things. So, strong, those strong in soul, those that make it through certain circumstances and trials with patience and fortitude, weak, those that are without soul strength, and those that are incapable of patience in face of calamities and trials. So if unity has been a focus, he continues that focus here in verse 1 of chapter 15. Now, why does he do this? Well, let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Very interesting passages of Scripture. Go back to Psalm 133. <clears throat> Psalm 133. And we read this, I think, a few weeks ago. Let's read it again. Verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is for the brethren <clears throat> to, dwell, to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. If unity is the focus, and Paul is alluding to Psalm 133, here the psalmist, David, and David wrote this, by the way, after the events of 2 Samuel chapter 15. So let's turn there. Always good to see why the psalms, and most of the psalms had, uh, were uh, predisposed to what had occurred in David's life at one time or another. So in Psalm 133, David says, okay, unity is like the fragrant, beautiful, and lovely perfume. It's like the dew of Hermon, which is a, a mountain in the very north of Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee. It's glistening often in the sunlight that shines on it. And it displays for, uh, or David rather says, it displays my longing for Zion. And there the Lord commanded a blessing, and the blessing that he commanded was life. Now, this is what preceded Psalm 133. 
verse 1 of chapter, uh, 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 15. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. The king doesn't care for you. Now who's the king? Who's the king? David. Who's Absalom? He's a prince, son of David. Hey, my dad doesn't care a thing about you. Now David had banished Absalom because he killed one of his half-brothers. And so Absalom now is trying to sneak back into Jerusalem. David writes about you. Is Absalom being a unifying person right now? Is he? No. No. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I was made the judge. And everyone who has any suit of cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow to him, that he would put out his hand, take him, and he would kiss him. Reminds me of someone else that gave our Lord a kiss. Was Judas a unifier? No. Is Absalom a unifier? No. And never in his entire life had he been a unifier. Absalom is a picture of the jealousy of an individual that wants to be in a place where his father was. He is the elder brother of Luke 15. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, if we were to follow through here, we find that in the latter part of chapter 15, Absalom, uh, David abdicates the throne and Absalom takes the throne. He pitches his dad out with the bathwater. And you know the story, of course, that uh, David sent his, his generals after there was a battle and Absalom was killed. Now, here's the thing. Absalom, there's no unity in Israel until after Absalom was killed. And David mourned for his son. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. My son. And then he wrote Psalm 133. So unity is the driving force behind what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 15. Next slide. 
It is God's desire for his people to be in one accord. Go to John 17. The great high priestly prayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the Lord is not praying over the world here. He's not praying that the world would be saved. He's praying over disciples. And marvelous and beautiful prayer. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. And since we know that the Lord never sinned, then this was not sin. But I pray for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them through the name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. In John 17, drop down to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So Jesus prayed for the unification of his disciples. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Did it, did it take place? Well, it did. For a while it did. And of course, old Slewfoot, he came in and started kicking people left and right. And before long, you had disagreements over baptism. You had disagreements over the Lord's Supper. You had dis disagreements over the doctrine of salvation and so forth and so on and so forth and so on. And so we became diverse without unity. Acts 2. And we're proud of our diversity without unity, which is unfortunate. Then those who gladly received, verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. In the breaking of bread and in prayers, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And so they saw their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And because of their unity, the Lord added to the church those that were being born again. And then one other passage, Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering bearing with one another in love there's the 
phrase again, bearing, same, same word that's used in Romans 15. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of the peace. So the Trinity is seen here, and the first one that he mentions is the Spirit. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. And now, God the Son. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and now God the Father. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. So Paul wrote this to the church at Ephesus, very similar to what he wrote to the church at Rome. And this one accord, what Jesus prayed for in John 17, what we read in Acts 2, what we've seen in Ephesians 4. This one accord is to occur in this church, the local church, Flat Creek, and others. We're not alone, but others. Now, go back to chapter 15 of the book of Romans. <clears throat> so Paul emphasizes here, moving from chapter 14 to chapter 15, Paul emphasizes that strong souls that have endured calamity and trials. Now, Robbie and I have been to Rome, and I mentioned to you that uh, we also went to the catacombs where often the Christian church in Rome would worship. And these were tombs. And so they would gather together there in the presence of dead bodies. And these dead bodies, only the Jews at the time, the Egyptians mummified, and the Jews would prepare bodies uh, for burial, very similar to what uh, Lazarus and the way that Jesus himself was, uh, was prepared. There was no embalming. Now, the Egyptians did it, and eventually that became... The, uh, uh, the rule. But the catacombs are very, very small caves under the ground. And so I imagine myself as we made, it, made our way down the steps to these catacombs. And there they have, and I'm sure they're not real, but they have these plastic skeletons just to remind you perhaps of what the Christians did encounter. Now, ask this question. If we today were forced to worship in that same way, would we? Those that are strong, that bear with the calamities and the trials. We're to bear with the weak, those that are incapable, with their scruples and their infirmities. So this was very real to Paul. Not so real to us because we're here in a beautiful facility. It's warm this morning. In the summertime, it's cool for the most part. But if we were forced, well, think of all the germs, man. You could, you could wear a double mask, triple mask. You could mask up, could you not? How comfortable we have become. We're to bear with these burdens. Now the word there, bear, means to take up your hands and carry a burdensome weight. Sometimes mature believers helping 
weak believers becomes burdensome. I heard Dr. John MacArthur many, many years ago in a sermon say, he said, usually in our church, I get the same questions from the same people almost all the time. And he said, it weighs heavily on my soul. He said, these are not people that are outside of church. These are people that come regularly. And yet, they will not apply what they hear. So Paul says, bear it. Paul says, take it up with your hands. Remember that it will be burdensome. The scruples and infirmities means the failings of the weak-minded. And this is important. The failings of the weak-minded that lead to error, especially in biblical doctrine. So for 11 chapters, Paul has paved the way teaching us about every single major doctrine in Scripture. He wants us to know these things. And yet, people still are led into error because they don't pay attention. Mm. The doctrines will lead to discipleship. Next slide, brother. So that's the, the segue into this particular slide. The indicatives, okay, the structure of what we believe. Verse 11 chapters. And so Paul again reminds Rome that the truth of these, basically that the Holy Spirit stated facts of Christ's work. How does this apply to us? What did Christ do for us? They are the prerequisites of the imperatives that began back in chapter 12 and that will carry through chapter 15. You don't have how to live until you know what to believe. You don't. So let's ask this question. How do the doctrines drive discipleship? Has Paul ignored the crescendo of chapter 6 and verses 1 through 14, which Vance has been teaching on Wednesday night, or from chapter 8 and verses 28 through 39? Those two marvelous benedictions. One is a, a leading into there in chapter 6. And one is a benediction in chapter. Is Paul, is Paul, has he ignored these? Does Jesus' death on the cross, does it mean that believers are only responsible for repenting of our sin and in faith trusting him alone? Is that all it means? Is John 3.16 the only verse in the Bible or is Romans 8.28 the only verse in the Bible? And yet, the weak live as if that's all that is important. And Paul says, no, you've got to bear reproach. And you can't bear reproach without these truths. 
When we examine verses in Scripture, it's important to ask this question. What did Jesus do on the cross with regard to the reality of this text? Yes, Jesus died for my sins according to the Scripture was buried and rose again the third day. What does that mean when we get to Romans chapter 15? What does it mean for the reality of the text? Next slide. Now Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. He wrote these marvelous words. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Did he mean by that that nothing else matters in a believer's life except the crucifixion? Is that what Paul meant? No. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written the 13 epistles. That's not what he meant. He meant, yes, this is of supreme importance, but that any instruction in discipleship, any imperatives from the doctrines, owe to the crucifixion. From the crucifixion, all these great truths come to light. So ask this question, chapter 15, these first four verses that we're looking at here. Did Jesus die so that this text, which is about unity, about diversity, about strong and weak believers, is in Romans simply to remind us that Jesus died for sinners? No, what he's teaching us here is that the sinners that he died for are to live this way. Or is his death on Calvary meant to surely make this text in its specificity, it's a hard word for me to say, possible for believers to follow? That's why he died. And so those with strong consciences are to gird up and bear with the infirmities of the weak so that the weak would learn these truths and learn how to live in the house of God. Next slide. So let's ask this question. What did Christ do on the cross with regard to this text reality, this truth that is contained in these first four verses of chapter 15? Christ's death obtained for us in addition to our salvation. Without his death we're not saved. But there are benefits to being born again. And we're reading some of those benefits now. In addition to our salvation the Christian life described and commanded by this text. We don't like that part of it. These are the imperatives. That's what they're called. So that means we don't get to debate them. His death on the cross exists for our salvation. And for the sake of strong and weak believers that grow as disciples from what Paul is writing here to the church at the moment. You want to grow strong? You want to become a disciple? 
then you will learn to bear reproach. You will learn to receive others, and you will learn to rejoice with others as well. The cross achieved much more than our forgiveness, our justification, our reconciliation, and so many other things. They were accomplished by his death and his resurrection. Next slide. But the cross also achieved every beneficial thing we hold dear. When Jesus died, he died to save sinners. He also died, and we will learn this in the end times when he returns to redeem the creation yet again. Our salvation and everything that God has made. Every blessing, every gift, every promise, every instruction, every warning, every small glimpse of God's glory, including things in the Old Testament. That's what he wrote about in verse 4. Jesus bought these with his blood so that his children might witness all the glories described in the word of God in order that we become disciples. Not so that we can be baptized and then forget about the church. How often do you hear today about some sports star, some movie star, entertainment individual that uh, supposedly comes to know the Lord and then they, one of the first things out of their mouth, or even years later, one of the things that they say is, but I'm not, I don't go to church. But I believe. Well, they're in direct violation of these last few chapters of the book of Romans. And the violation is sin. Christ's death means that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. That we can bear with infirmities. Well, I can't do that. No, that's not what it means. Then what you're saying is that Christ is incapable of bringing me to a point by the Spirit of God that I can bear with infirmities. And Christ is not incapable of anything. That we can bear the reproaches of the world. I'm going to stop there this morning. I'll pick up with this. There's only a few, few more verses and slides, but I'm going to wait because we go into, he talks about reproaches, and I need to spend more time on that reproaches. Uh, and we'll do that next Sunday morning. So remember that today. Christ's death means that we can be conformed to its image. Not that we're going to be, it means we can be conformed to his image. We can live this way. Are we going to sin? Yes, absolutely. Are we going to need to repent and ask forgiveness of the sins if we sometimes lose patience with others? Absolutely. But never say 
as a believer. If you claim to know Jesus Christ, never say as a believer, I can't do what the scripture says. Well, then you're saying there's no power in the word of God. And the power of the gospel that saves is the power of the gospel that enables us to live. All God's people said, the power of the gospel to save is the power of the gospel that enables us to live. And the reason we don't live that way is because we choose not to live that way. It's not because Christ is incapable. If he's able to save us to the uttermost, as the book of Hebrews says, he is able to conform us to his image in living this way in unity within the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. Thank you for the power of the truth of the gospel. May we never blame you for our inconsistencies. May we just confess it for all our sin, knowing that you love us and that you bring comfort to us. And that we can never ask you for forgiveness too much because you are always there to forgive us. As we learned last week, there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. Oh, what, what marvelous, marvelous truth. Move us, Lord Jesus, to learn. And yes, we forget often the doctrines, but to learn of these so that we might live accordingly in the church as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. And so this morning we're going to sing to close out <clears throat> our um, worship this morning. And then as we, uh, after we sing that particular hymn, I'm going to ask... Uh, uh, Brother Wally, if you'd have a benediction, and then Mike, you can lead us in a closing chorus. God bless you for being here. We do have some that are our guests today. Be careful as you leave here. We will be back again this evening at the 6.30 hour. Brother Mike.